and scholars. You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. I'm Nicoletta Heidegger, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I'm really excited to welcome one of my former classmates from Widener, Brittany Broadus-Smith. She is the founder and lead educator of The Intimacy Firm. The Intimacy Firm is an intimacy consulting and sexuality education organization. Brittany earned her bachelor's degree in psychology and master's degrees in both social work and human sexuality education, which is where we met. She she also is a licensed social worker who teaches locally and nationally. Working at the intersections of sexuality, faith, and race, Brittany aims to empower individuals to discover, embrace, and navigate the world of sexuality in a way that doesn't compromise their personal or professional values. Hi. Hey. Hey. Oh my I'm so glad to be talking with you again. I know. Well, Brittany was so sweet when we were doing our master's program. She even did like a video with me for my website and we had a great time in class together and haven't been able to hang out as much as we would like because now we're like busy trying to change the world of sexuality. Um, right. But she's doing some amazing stuff and I'm so glad that you're that you're joining me. I'm so excited. Like I've been waiting. It's like a really like a bright spot in my week. So I'm like quite excited oh, about it. Thank <laughs> you. Well, any, anytime anyone hits us up about like religion and sex stuff, I'm like, mm -hmm. I just send them your link. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you so much. It's something I'm like trying to learn more about, but I really don't know as much about it as I would like, but mm -hmm. I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but just for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work, I would love to know like when you felt like this was the path that was right for you? Sure. So it was kind of like a bumpy road, if you will, because all the way up until my first day of undergrad, I was going to be a lawyer. Like literally from birth, I was wanting to be a lawyer. But then I poli-sci or intro to uh, poli-sci was just like way too boring for me. And I was like, you know, this is not the work that I had to do. So I went to It's psych good that uh, you found that <laughs> out in an, in an introductory course as opposed oh, to goodness. going to law school. Was, right. And it was, but it was really the professor. Like I probably could have been a really good lawyer, but like the professor was just like the absolute worst. Like I was like, oh no, I can't do this for four years. And so I went to psychology and I always loved people. I always, you know, volunteered, did a helping work. And then I was like, psychology was a little more little too aloof. It wasn't enough connection to the people that I wanted. It wasn't like that boots on the ground experience. Then I did social work, but I was like, I love couple work. And I always loved the like sex and sexuality and talking about sex, learning about it, always been there. And when I recognized that sex therapy was a thing, like a specific discipline, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then being actually what made a shift from just sex therapy in general to really like the faith-based space was because I got married really early. I got married when I was 22. Um, and I married someone about 10 years, my senior, who was a deacon at one of the local churches. And just the experience of being number one, young and married to someone older, and then having the eyes, if you will, or being under that a mindset of how the church was at the time. And then like the black church experience and being what it means to be a wife. And that space was like really unique. And I'm like, I'm not the only one that's experiencing this. And then just hearing some of the, the words and concepts and language of some of even the older people, I'm like, Oh, y'all have no idea <laughs> what you're talking about. And then not knowing that they weren't going to listen to me because I'm a, I'm a little girl in their eyes at 22. I was like, okay, you yeah, know, this is, this is not the God that I know. So I was like, okay, we have to do something about it. And then the intimacy firm started in 2016 and I didn't think that it was going to, I wasn't sure how it was going to be received, but I just did like a flyer for my first event, my signature event during discussions and 50 women showed up and like the way they just like poured out and just was like, desperate for the space to have those, uh, those vital conversations, I was like, okay, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. 
So you said you joined, you know, when you became a deacon's wife, but it sounds like you had God and faith in your life before. Like, how was the God that you knew different from what you were seeing when you joined that community? You know what? It's funny because I, um, I've been, and the terminology that we use um, is I've been saved like a, a Christian for a really long time, actually since I was 12 years old, but I don't consider myself to have been raised in the church because that, that's a different experience. For me, I went to church because of who my mom was dating at the time and I got saved there. But when she stopped going to church at like when I was 13, I kept going. And so my relationship with God was, has always been a very personal one. Like it's not, it wasn't ever um, something that someone gave to me or told me that I should have. It actually was the opposite of what was being experienced in my house. So it wasn't something that was like kind of passed down to me. And so I really mm-hmm. had to spend time figuring out God for myself and what that looked like at 14, making a decision to be abstinent when no one told me that I had to, like, it was just, you know, reading the Bible for myself and decide like, okay, this is what I wanted to do. And so coming into this space and that like more never really having had that traditional church experience in as much as it was a regular part of my life. Like I went to boarding school, so I participated on a choir. Like I would go to Bible studies there. When I came home, I would have like a few Sunday experiences on the weekends and things like that, but I never had a church home. So getting married and having a church home, um, the like the implications of that were much different. And then, like you said, being a deacon's wife and what was expected of me and what the um, the viewpoint of what a deacon's wife was supposed to be or just a wife in general was like was different in like the very rigid and strict way that some of. Uh, some of them flow just didn't really align with what I experienced when I charted out my own path to a relationship with God prior to. And then mind you, I was young. So 14 year old me and 22 year old me was like really different. And I kind of just chalked up what the 14 year old me knew as like, oh, that was just, I was just too young to understand what it was supposed to be. And I tried to fit in for a little bit. I but I mean, Nico, you know me, so you know I've done that's not <laughs> something that I, you know that's not something that I do well. So, needless to say, some things were shaken up. But the good thing is that I had support. That's the that's the one thing. Like my my pastor at the time, when I was very clear about, I started off as like I said, I wanted to be a sex therapist. My husband wasn't on board with it. I actually, I actually intended to enroll in Widener's program in 2013. I graduated Temple in 2012. I intended to enroll in Widener the next year, but the two-year gap was because just working with my husband to be comfortable with having conversations of sex in public, he did, that wasn't something that he was comfortable with. And so that was really the delay. And it was the support of my pastor that helped him get to the space where he was like, okay, I know that this is, you know, something which you want, that you want to do and it'll be done tastefully and things like that. But it's like, he was like, one of the questions were like, when we talked about it, he was like, so what you want to be on a billboard? Like, want to learn how to give a, a blowjob? Call Brittany. And I'm like, no, that's not how <laughs> sex therapy works. <laughs> I mean, if how... I did see that billboard, I would call you, but yes. <laughs> right. I could probably get a lot of like, coaching clients through that but no so like <laughs> as you can see like it was a very limited view of what it was and so do it you was, think uh, you had less sexual shame in your experience because this was like a path you chose as opposed to one that was like forced on you i do i i actually don't feel as if i care i feel like the sexual shame that i've carried or the work that i'm doing around like sexual stuff and body stuff is really more of a personality insecurity thing versus anything rooted in religion. Mm. Cause we have talked to a few folks on the podcast who were, you know, raised in like a very devout religious thing. And so I've mm-hmm. noticed these big levels of like sexual shame, mm-hmm. um, you know, based on, based on teachings that they've learned. And I wonder um, what kind of experiences with that have you seen and, and how do you help folks overcome that 
It's, you know, it's tough because as you said, there, like, there's some folks from very devout backgrounds and how the, like the tenets or principles of the Bible are enacted or carried out is very Mm -hmm. different from one person to the next. So it's really tough to like, I knew early on that, particularly with the, um, even though I moved more to the education space in when I find myself in clinical settings, I really have to take time digging in and figuring out what that experience was. Like, what are we talking about? Like, even as much as what was the denomination of the ministry, because even that affects the language and the impact. And I can get, I can really get a sense of what that messaging looked and felt like back then. If you tell me the denomination, because their language around certain sexual topics is different from so it could be different sometimes from one denomination to the next. And so a lot of folks say things like Christians and the uh, Bible thumpers or Jesus believers and things like that, like in like this general kind of sweeping way. And it's really not that generalizable. Like when you think about it, because there are so many different denominations, even within denominations, there are so many different doctrines and you really have to address each one head on. But what is universal and one of the things that the intimacy from is built on is that the Bible and God are inherently sex positive. So I start I start there, regardless of what your background is. I start at looking at if there's any body stuff, looking at um, scriptures that talk about being fearfully and wonderfully made. Talk about um, in Genesis when he said he got sold all that he had made and said it was good. So any like body shame already sits in opposition of what God would have had for individuals. I look at scriptures that explicitly talk about pleasure and things like that. And God's heart for even in the, um, and the, even in the design of our bodies, God's heart for us to, uh, receive pleasure and experience pleasure in the, just in the very fiber of our beings. So those kind of universal truths or what I found to be universal truth is where I, start with supporting people because some of the more deeper things are like specific to them and it kind of comes out as we continue the work but just like as a baseline information that everybody should know even non-believers should know that god in the bible shouldn't be like hated in my you know, i imagine my that would surprise a lot of people to know sure. that there's some sex positive sex positivity in there help help me understand some of the some of the other verses and stuff that, that you base that on? So um, I, have, I have a workshop called If God Created My Clitoris. And we're looking yes, at... Yes, I love it. <laughs> looking at sex positivity and pleasure principles in the Bible. And as I said, from the, from the beginning, from Genesis, straight out the gate, um, when God created um, Adam and Eve, we understand that the Bible is... Um, the text is a binary and, you know, and heteronormative where, you know, it's, we're clear there. Um, however, from those, from the beginning, when he was creating, going through the six days, creating the world and that when humanity was created, he said, I got all that he had made and it was good. When Adam, Adam and Eve was created, the very first commandment that God gave them as husband and wife was to be fruitful and multiply. So sex just in general was inextricably a part of, humanity from the beginning when when the world started sex started <laughs> from the from the beginning it was there there as you go further throughout he um uh, he shared with other biblical characters such as noah and things like that also be fruitful and multiply so everybody because that says so often everybody speaks about procreation as i guess you can have sex to to procreate. But then when I also believe that I call them the three P's, I look at sex for procreation or feel like God designed sex for procreation, partnership, and uh, pleasure. And we're looking at partnership. It talks about um, the bonding nature of it. There's a scripture that talks about um, when um, husband and wife get married, that there's a process of they leave their family and cleave to their spouse. And there's a process where they become one. And there's a bonding process in a uh, equitable, um, vulnerable, mutual vulnerability. And when you're bearing yourself to your partner to be able to become one, one, become one flesh. And then when you think about certain sexual, sexual acts, it's literally the joining of flesh in, in some cases. So there's that. And then we look at 
the pleasure aspect, the Song of Solomon, chapter four, really late. Well, even leading up to chapter four, it talks, it's very explicit uh, language about the bridegroom and how he's admiring his bride's body. And he goes from head to toe talking about how she's visually pleasing. Then it gets to chapter four and that that's their honeymoon. And you can see the combination of their, their love in that space. And as it gets further out, even to chapter seven with another um, expression of sexual experiences, but being even more intense than the other, but it also speaks of pleasure and as equitable it speaks um, scriptures. And for me, like there's a difference between like, there's a word called exegesis and there's a word called eisegesis. And when you're breaking down scripture, if you're exegeting a text, you are breaking it down. You're net, nor, net, uh, normally addressing a group of people explaining the scripture. And the eisegesis is you're doing the same thing, but sometimes you put just a little bit of your own stuff on it, not to make it say something that it doesn't mean, but when it comes to like application and bringing it to 21st century context and things like that, you, you know, stretch it just a, li- a little bit, but it still aligns. And so even when you look at the scripture of doing to others, as you have done unto you, that for me is the root of not being a selfish lover and being equitable in the administering of, of pleasure. There was a scripture in Proverbs that says, um, uh, rejoice in the wife of the wife of your youth. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated with her love. And so when we look at the root the original language and look at the root word of the word intoxicated, and even just on a, as a, um, on a base, basic level, look at how we feel when we're, if we're intoxicated, if we had a, went out and had a good time drinking. Like drunk and how, in love. Right, right. How we're, exactly. And so that right there, it shows the root of pleasure. And also for me, when it looks at rejoicing a wife or youth that speaks about longevity and also speaks of, for me, no age limit to folks who can access pleasure. So when you're looking at sex positivity, um, folks, elder, um, elderly folk or older, older adults aren't often included in that conversation. But in that scripture, it talks about it being a continual, it being a continual thing. When, you, when it says, let her breast satisfy you always, we know that we're talking about two adults. And so the function, one of the other known functions of the breast is to nurse. And we're talking about adults. So you're not getting uh, sustenance from the breast. So it has to be, the only other option is a pleasurable a pleasurable experience. And, when we look, and what we know about erogenous zones, that that is also likely an equitable experience. And now some folks, that can that analogy can break down. We have some folks that say, oh, I don't like my, my breast touch. Yes, we get that. But the principle of it is there. And just like some principles, it doesn't always apply in every single case, but it's definitely, it's absolutely there. I mean, it sounds like it is. And I can see how it's so difficult because there are so many interpretations. If someone's doing the eisegesis, then there's really so many options for interpretation. Right. And I mean, and even that is options for interpretation. But again, I don't want to move to a place where I can say, oh, you can make the Bible, you know, think what you wanted to think or say what you wanted to say. It's not that because there is a discipline to the exegesis of the text, which goes first. But I think that when reading the Bible, there is time that God shows you things that are specific and germane to you that other people it may not apply in that way in other folks lives. I think it that part sounds beautiful and connected <laughs> with a partner. And like you mentioned, there is this, you know, heteronormative, uh, committed marriage partnership assumption. And I wonder, you know, how might you work with folks who are wanting to remain close to their God, but also want to sexually express themselves before getting married? And see, again, it would, that's one of those things where it, beco- it comes down to a doctrinal thing. And then when you look at values and how, whether values can, um, govern or guide what you do versus how you project them onto others. So if I, mm-hmm. in a situation like that, if I'm asked a specific question about what I know, what I understand the Bible to be saying, as far regarding abstinence until marriage and things like that, I speak, I share my, my, um, my belief and my thought, but it's not a matter of 
for that you must die. You're going to burn to hell if you're out, if you're sleeping with someone. That's not how I, that's not how I approach things because the thing is that there's a, um, the biblical concept that some plant, some water is God who gives the increase. So the conversation that I'm having with folks at that time, if they, if that's not a decision that comes out on the other end of it, then it wasn't for me to, um, it wasn't for, that wasn't for me to achieve that in that moment. Like I have the conversations with the folks that I'm supposed to have. I answer the questions. Like I'm the type of person, whatever question you ask me, I'm going to give it. And I also recognize um, abstinence as a covenant thing. And it's like a posture of the heart where it is something that one chooses to do in service to God. And if abstinence is is done like begrudgingly or because I feel like I have to, and there's no heart part connected to it, then that is opposite of what the intentions of my understanding of the intentions of it in the Bible anyway. So if I wouldn't want anybody to be convinced, if you will, like, okay, Brittany said, I, or based on this, I feel bad or like guilted into it. It's like, it's a heart decision. Mm-hmm. And then would you say, and I mean, I guess your relationship with God, is, you know, everyone has their own relationship mm-hmm. with him and with their community. Mm-hmm. How does someone come to terms with maybe going against that and being like, you know, this abstinence thing like doesn't speak to me and I don't feel like it's a heart covenant, but I still want to go to church or I still believe in God. And I believe that, you know, he would support me in this. And by all means, they should continue to serve him as such like that. That is not a matter. So there's like no hierarchy of, and when you think about things that the Bible says you should and shouldn't do, there's the word sin that is often connected to that. And so there's no sin. There's no sin that is greater than the other. So there, and we all have um, another common phrase is like that sin that so easily besets us, if you will, like that one that we just often uh, struggle with. Or, you know, Paul talks about and um, Romans talks about having a thorn, something being a thorn in our flesh, which like keeps us prayerful, keeps us, you know, connected to God in a way. Everybody has one that's different. And I am who and I've settled. Who am I to make a hierarchical structure out of? folks uh decisions and so there are a lot of people there are a lot of known theologians who have studied and looked at original language and have decided that when the word fornication was written it was looking at more of a uh a uh what's the word i'm looking for a breach of a business contract and so that it's since have been applied to sex before marriage and things like that. So they've settled on that's not what it that's not what it meant. And so there is a there is a lot of discussion on whether that's what it meant or not meant. And it, as far as like God just wants us to be loved and God, why would he withhold any good he says I will I will withhold no good thing from you. So if that is the case, you know, why would why would this be a rule, if you will? But for me mm-hmm. Um, thinking about absence, as I said, as a heart thing, as a covenant thing, it's not a matter of him withholding it from us, but just setting it aside for an appointed time. Just like any other thing that we know that is ours, it belongs to us, we have access to it, but we have not tapped into it yet. But it, it's one of those things where it's like, if you ask me specifically what I believe, we can talk about that. But a lot of times folks are coming to me already dealing with a thing or having an experience. And at this point, I want to make sure that you are, when it comes to sex education, I want to make sure that you are having, if you're having sex, that you're having safer sex, that you're not making, I'm not going to withhold knowledge and information that you need to keep, you know, keep yourself safer because I feel like, oh, you shouldn't be doing this in the first place. That's, that's counterproductive because the thing is that at the end of the day, if I'm trying to win you for Christ, but you pass away for some reason before I can get to it, then I've not done, you know, not done my job. Like if I'm, I'm we're prioritizing, we're thinking about eternal things, which we should, but there's life happening right here, right now in front of you that we need to address. So it sounds like you've developed this thing where you're trying to help folks come to terms with what works for them and what relationship with their faith looks like for them. 
And mm-hmm. you might share your own experiences and say, you know, this is my interpretation. This is how I take it and what works for you. And if this is, you know, if you're looking to have sex before marriage, here's some resources. It's yeah, here's some resource. And really this is about it's, it's, it's touchy because when you say like, here's some resources, they could come off as like, I'm affirming or condoning, you know, things that biblically says aren't true but the thing is that for me i'm not in a position to condone anything like i'm not i'm not your parent judge i'm not your right Mm -hmm. yeah like that's not that's not the position that i'm in however if through the conversation you come out so i've here i hear something that's like oh no 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 don't do that why are you wearing two condoms at one time like no that's not how that works like that you know those type of like red flag Situations, because for me, I feel like information, particularly in this context, and when the work that I do in uh, with in face spaces, information, comprehensive sex, ed, I believe is for absolutely everybody. There's something appropriate for from birth to the grave. There's information that folks need regarding sex, sexuality, intimacy, their bodies, and all the things. But that's different for me than hosting a class on better oral sex techniques as far as my value system i wouldn't be able to do that in like a come one come all space like but if i i could do something like that in a space for married for couples that come together but that you know that's me personally i think it's a difference again from information and encouragement i think information is for everybody and then there are encouragements that can happen based on again based on values because practitioners need to also adhere to their own value system and there is being disingenuous and really if there is a issue of values that's not being addressed in the space whether it's educational or clinical that can be a problem for the therapeutic relationship but i also make sure that i have a resource list of other practitioners who this is their this is their thing this is their jam this is what they do well you can, I, um, I want to refer you here to make sure, because ultimately I still want to make sure you get your needs met, whether I'm the person to meet them or not is, um, is dependent on the situation. How do you think we can help convince, I don't want to say convince, but help folks understand that comprehensive sex ed does not have to be dangerous to to potential abstinence. Cause I think, you know, there's this old kind of adage of like, Oh, well, if you teach, if you teach it, then kids will do yeah. more of it as opposed right. to like you're saying, you know, this will give you uh, an educated way to approach and make your own decision. Absolutely. And the thing is that that, that work and that struggle isn't germane to the church. Like I, I also work in a school setting where I have that same issue that parents feel like, uh, sexual education equals sexual promotion. And it really, and the reality of it is that statistics show that uh, students or folks who have access to comprehensive sex ed actually delay sexual, sexual initiation uh, longer. And if the thing is that it's, you want to make, for me, it's making an informed decision and ultimately keeping, um, keeping, and my heart is for keeping children safe. And I think that in spaces where sex education and comprehensive sex ed is not a thing, that's where child sex abuse happens. That's where insecurities happen, like deep rooted sexual shame that care that you carry throughout your life. That's where that happens, where folks aren't educated. And for me, that's twofold because as an educator, I know the impact. And also as a believer, I recognize that the scriptures show otherwise. And so people live their whole lives attributing things to God that he's like, I don't got nothing to do with that. Yeah. And when you use the word safety, it sounds like it's all kinds of safety. You know, it's not just like safe, safer sex, like avoiding sexually transmitted infections. It's like emotionally safe, spiritually safe, absolutely, um, all kinds of safety. Yeah. Exactly. Like it it just like well-being, confidence, like being able to look in the mirror and enjoy what you see, being able to, Hold, take hold or uh, move in like all with full autonomy and agency, all of those things is found like there's some aspect of sex and sexuality where your human existence is, is, um, is rested in that. And being safe means knowing for me, knowing who you are 
inside and out. And even as a four year old, being able to name your name, your vulva, identify your parts, understand that you have that free and open communication with that with your a trusted adult to be able to if something have does consent happen, conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even down and the consent conversation that really someday the, the, we know that the building blocks of consent have nothing to do with sex. We've, we started with sharing and, and holding hands or sitting on that like basic stuff. Like, can I borrow your pencil? Can I use your pencil before I just pick it up? We start in there. And the thing that folks don't often see for me, there is a, there is like, even like in a funny tip, like there's a sexual innuendo that I can make about absolutely everything. But in reality, <laughs> there are probably- Which I appreciate. Right. But the thing that in reality, there is a, some may be a, more far in a distance than others, but there is a connection to our, who we are as sexual beings in everything that we do. On the topic of comprehensive sex education and myth-busting, remember that many people need lube, and it may have nothing to do with how much you're enjoying yourself during sex play. Lube can just make it better and more comfortable. UberLube is a luxurious, high-grade silicone lubricant made from clean, body-friendly ingredients. Right now, UberLube is offering listeners a special 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. It's great for folks experiencing dryness or discomfort and can be used for all types of sexual and non-sexual things. Remember, the more you support our sponsors, the more it supports the podcast. So get a special 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S, S-A-N-D-S, at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use code S&S at uberlube.com. Now, back to the episode. Having conversations and being able to advocate for yourself, asking, like, it starts with, like, sexual negotiation and all of that, like, starts, like, from childhood. So then when we're working with adults, having to unpack and undo and unlearn all of these bad habits and things like that, a lot of times I'm really talking with, and not, it has nothing to do with intelligence, but just an experience, I'm advocating and empowering and for um, autonomy and agency with 50-year-olds in the same way that I would a five-year-old. Because as far as what they've been told they have access to, it's about the same. I would love to hear about your experience working in the schools and like where our sex education is at in schools. Um, so I work in the city of Philadelphia, um, managing a prevention grant and we are doing just a lot of innovative and, you know, amazing things regarding comprehensive sex ed, include increasing student access to youth-friendly sexual health services and fostering safe and supportive environments for our LGBTQ, all students, but with a, a particular emphasis on our LGBTQ youth. And I'm really proud, I've been here for a couple, just over a year now, and I'm just really proud of the work that we're doing to try to get a comprehensive sex, like a standardized comp ed, um, comp sex ed, through the district, just, you know, trying to really put our ears to the ground and look and listen to the students, listen to, you know, those folks really in the buildings doing the work to figure out what is needed and, and what way that is needed, really committed like, and actually it's required to really have those crucial conversations with parents to get them to make them feel like they have a say in uh, what's going on because they do and prioritizing their, their wants and needs for their children. Um, I've been hearing some groanings that the uh, state is getting ready to update their national sex ed standards, but we're moving based on, I mean, their state sex ed standards, but we're moving based on the national standards as well as the CDC's um, healthy behavior outcomes and things like that. So I'm really, I'm quite proud of the work we've been able to accomplish in the short amount of time. So for most folks, they probably won't be getting the comprehensive unless there is like a special grant or something really overlooking how things are going. Well, I mean, it would, I guess it would depend on where they are in the district. I know the grant that we have are, is in, I want to say, 28 other school districts in the nation. So the mm -hmm. CDC is really, you know, committed to getting this out there. But with 
education being the way it is and the state oversight that the the power that the state has over those type of or lack uh, of resources or or lack of resources and it's like there's state oversight and then there's like local districts who can decide so it really is just like there's no we want to standardize it but because it's so many different structures it's tough to do that but just really being able to do the work to just globally make it important have everybody come to understanding that it's important like that's the first step and then so that it's not a matter of grant, special grant funding, that it becomes like really a part of just like basic operating funding. And do you consider the work that you're doing in the school district to be part of like faith-based education or does it feel separate? No, no, this, this is not faith-based education at all. It's just um, this is um, strictly adolescent health focus and district focus. There's no um, faith discussions. Um, I do tap into it. Like if I'm meeting with a group of parents and they have a specific question because that is, um, rooted in their faith system. And if it's something that I can speak to, I will. But for the most Mm -hmm. part, it's, 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 uh, the work that I do here is separate from that. And what if something comes up for you that feels maybe against your own personal values? Is that tough? It's, I mean, it's nuanced. It's, it's, um, it's tough, but it's tough, but it's not because it makes me, it makes me think, it makes me do values assessments and things like that. But the reality like of it, it challenges is, you in a good way, a, a bit to a degree, but again, my ultimately, my faith is rooted in, uh, equity, the greatest two commandments, love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And we don't get to choose who our neighbor is. So for me, anything that I would fight for, push for, and advocate for myself, I'm going to do for others, regardless of our share. If we have a shared value system, regardless of background, regardless of anything, um, Jesus, for me, is the prototypical social advocate. And so everything Mm -hmm. that I do, whether it aligns with my values or not, um, if it comes to if it if it if it's rooted in making a better life for another person, then I'll do it. So it's not like you're teaching about it, but obviously the the values are with you always. Always correct. Yeah. I mean, the thing that that I've heard conflict in, at least for for clients that I see, would be you know, gay or queer identity and faith based stuff. And so what you're saying about you know lo- love thy neighbor. Everyone was created the way they were supposed to, like love yourself, be okay with who you're looking at in the mirror. And, you know, there are some parts of the of the scripture that, you know, maybe advocate just for heterosexual relationships. And now that you're working with uh, LGB youth, um, tell me about that intersection. I mean, as I said, it really, my, my faith-based work don't, does not show up here um yeah. in the work that I'm doing here. So if I'm doing a lesson modeling or a technical assistance support for a health teacher on um like we we did one recently on sexual orient it was uh, orientation, behavior and identity. What the defi- the definitions are what they are and they're um the again the per- uh promotion of equity and again safe and supportive environment for all students is what the the strategy, the core strategy, the core value is what it is. And how I am, how I govern myself is I, um, there's a concept in, you know, biblical about entreating the foreigner or um, how you engage someone that may be considered the other in as much as they're, you know, different from you. And that is mm-hmm. where my heart will be. That's what, those are the things that I'm going to have to account for. So if, again, if I'm withholding vital, useful information that could make for a better life, a better experience if they can bring a child a little bit more joy or a student a little bit more joy when they look in a mirror and it makes a student feel seen, then there's nothing that says I shouldn't be doing that for me. Mm-hmm. And what about when you're teaching more in like faith-based spaces? Well, all of the faith-based spaces that I've taught in thus far um, are where I were welcoming spaces, but of the, um, as far as the leadership that uh, Brody were mostly uh, binary um, um, comprised of, at least express, were expressly 
binary and um, comprised of the traditional heterosexual um, long-term marriage relationships. So the conversation, mm-hmm. so my my teaching, the what they and what it what is being asked of me is specifically how to increase intimacy, how to improve improve, improve eroticism, looking at um, tenets of the Bible regarding whether God honors sexual pleasure and things like that. But it's the requests mm-hmm. are specifically for within the context of marriage. Yeah. And when you get a group like that, if they've like never had any sex ed, like where do you start? So you start the, with be- the, the scripture. <laughs> yep. Yep. Let's start with the scripture to um, help them understand that what I'm saying is biblical because a lot of times folks won't hear me. Like they'll be in the space, stay with me for the whole hour, however long, but won't hear anything that I say because they don't feel like it's rooted in scripture. So I spend a good deal of time mm-hmm. rooting it in scripture. And then a lot, then it's a mix between, you know, giving the lessons and really just um, debunking myths. And that's like, for me, if I, if I only get you in front of me one time, I'd rather help you unlearn something than teach you something new. Because if you leave out of here still with that stuff that you need to unlearn, still believing in myths, that's going to counteract anything new that I taught you. So that's a, what are I some of the myths? In that structure. I mean, like this, you know, it's like I say, which me sometimes talking to when it comes to sex ed, introducing concepts to a five year old, I can also be introducing that same concept to a 50 year old. And just the right. concept about being able, like, Basic stuff like the difference between a vulva and a vagina, the difference, mm-hmm. um, understand like appropriate, like technical terminology for different sex acts, like oral sex, conolingus versus fellatio, like things like that. Um, I understand I had a quite did a workshop the other day where one of the questions was if oral sex was ten, uh, similar or was basically the same thing as cannibalism, and so like that's more. Breaking that down. Oh my gosh, you got to tell me how you answered how you answered that. <laughs> I I mean, I gave the definition of cannibalism, and then I gave the <laughs> definition of oral sex, and I'm like, clearly, that's not the same thing. And so I, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. You know, there's no like stupid questions, and if someone's right. really coming from that mindset, and right. and it sounds so foreign to me. Right, and that, so that's why I'm saying like there, like some of this stuff, and it, the range is so great. Like you never know what you're going to get until you get in this space. And that's why I'm very intentional about how I approach it. Like I really intentionally make it a good time because my, I really want to p- get folks to let their hair down because when they're able to let their hair down, that's when the real questions come out and then allowing them to be anonymous was really helpful. So we had that question. We had a question about if, if a, a wife was, was to uh, manually stimulate her husband's penis is that the same thing as masturbation just because the act itself was what he would do to himself and she's doing to him does that also count as masturbation and for someone who feels like masturbation doesn't align with their values that is like a heavy weight to bear especially if that's something that they've been doing consistently so that's why i said like refining definitions debunking myths and things like that is in um is more important then for me, then introducing new concepts as yet. Now, hope, a lot of times I've been able to create connections where I can come back a second time. And I'm like, we're going to do this intro base level. I need to see where you are first. And then we can push the envelope the next, you know, next go round. But when it comes to bringing peace and shattering shame, the shame is most often rooted in myths. So that's where, my, um, again, if I don't ever see you again, I need you to leave out of here feeling better about yourself. So. Yeah, I'm, I am curious where like self-pleasure fits into that. Because something that I know we talked about in our program is like, you know, knowing your own body first and figuring out what you like and being comfortable with like naming parts and stuff like that. And I think it's in the Old Testament because I know that it's a, an Orthodox Jewish practice at least, but the the sin of Onan, which is mm-hmm. like, thou, you know, thou shalt not like spill their seed, meaning mm-hmm. like don't waste your semen um, mm-hmm. unless it's going somewhere. Um, and so I wonder how does, how does masturbation fit into that? So again, that's one of those like myths that we kind of debunk because so the sin of Onan contextually was, 
the spilling the seed part wasn't about wasting it per se in a context of masturbation. It was because he was supposed to procreate with his brother's wife to continue the family line and he did not. So that is mm. that was the sin of Omi by he disobeyed the custom. And so and when mm-hmm. you and it doesn't even apply to masturbation because in that instance there was actual um, not actual, but they were, it was partnered. It was a partnered experience. So it doesn't even mm-hmm. connect there. And then when you think of like seed and semen and things like that, how does that apply to folks who don't have a penis? So it's hard right. to, there's I guess no it doesn't blanket. apply because we're never, we're never wasting or we're at least our body's wasting it once a month when, it, you know, when we right, menstruate. But not in the concept <laughs> of orgasm. Right. So there yeah. is, so it doesn't apply. And so that's why I'm still breaking down things like that. Now I am of the belief that you should explore your body. You should know what works for you and what doesn't pressure points and things like that. Um, as far as, but for me, like there's like body exploration for knowledge purposes. And then there's body exploration for purely pleasure purposes. I think that there's sometimes like different, like when you're taking Taking a mirror, you know, to, you know, look at your vulva once a month to make sure everything is the same place it was before. And just like, you know, it's just getting in tune with who you are and looking at yourself, you know, in the mirror naked and things like that, what some people don't do and, and things like that. When it comes to whether masturbation is allowed or a sin or whatever, it really, there is no scripture that directly forbids it. However, when you, um, when you break it down or peel back the layers, there are other uh, biblical principles that could be at odds with the practice. If you think mm-hmm. about, um, so like lust being, um, lust being something, uh, being an issue. And if you think about who, who you're thinking about when you're, if you're thinking about someone when you're mar- uh, masturbating, if you're thinking about someone else's spouse when you're masturbating, if you're, you know, that that could be an issue when you're thinking about uh, uh, if you're using pornography and like the concept of even that is nuanced because the thought of do you know if these two people who are you know doing this are having are they married when they have sex like there's so many like nuancey things to it but ultimately as I said abstinence is a heart thing it's a commitment that you make to God and you're trusting in Him that He will. And this is a, a like jargony term to the church that he will keep you and meaning like he will be able to help sustain you and your, your, you know, your heart, mind and spirit through this time of abstinence. So then if you're using masturbation as a substitute for this heart sacrifice with God, then there is issue mm-hmm. there that you, when you can break it down. But then on the other end, we're also looking at the fact that. Folks are getting married young uh, later. Um, puberty is starting earlier. So as far as like the hormonal changes that folks um, experience and when thoughts of um, self-pleasure and even just like introduction to sex and sexuality, all of that has shifted in this context. So it's a bigger conversation than absolutely not. But it's also a bigger conversation than sure. Go ahead. You know, do what you do. So it really, again, that's a doctrinal thing and it's a denominational thing but me personally I feel like you you should not be sharing your body with someone if you don't know your body first personally that's a tough one though because often fantasies are things that feel you know out of our control like sometimes Mm -hmm. they just pop in there and so what do you what do you do with that if that doesn't feel aligned with uh with your faith right I mean but when you're thinking about something that just pops in like something that you don't have control over. But then even that, again, that can be nuanced because then you're thinking about what are, what are you experiencing? What are you letting in to your, um, another jargony term, your eye gates or your ear gates? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Who are you hanging around like on a day-to-day basis that create access for these fantasies, which is, you know, a deeper discussion. But there's also times where, I masturbation can happen with no thought, with a clear mind. Like I'm not thinking about anything. I wasn't even necessarily aroused at the time. It was just something that I decided to do to pass the time. And so when it's in that, <laughs> <I feel that. laughs> so when it's in that box, where are we? And so there's like again, who you this it's commonly held, like it is a common held belief that masturbation is thin, but when you begin to 
say the Bible says, that's when it starts to break down. But there is there is, you know, viable arguments on either side. I mean, we talked a lot about restrictions just because I think that's where some of the the misconceptions and the and the shame comes from um, that that I personally educate a lot about. And I know that you're fun and amazing. <laughs> And it sounds like you incorporate that in the stuff that you do. Like, help me understand how sex can be fun, even when you're working within some of these limitations, and how you help folks, like, find that and transition from abstinence to enjoyment. And, you know, like, like I said, most of the time when I'm being asked to have these, these conversations, it is in the context of traditional you know, heteronormative uh, relationships. And so yeah. when I talk about there is a freedom that I speak about that has been because we view in Christianity, we view sex as a gift that was gifted to us by God that we have the gift to have access to. And so I started off by saying if God, God of the universe, God, our father, God who loved you, who saved you, did all things. If he took his time to create a thing, create your body to experience a thing and give you this gift, are you just going to let it sit on the shelf? Or are you going to experience it for all it's worth? Because obviously, it's, if it's important to him, it should be important to you. And then really just breaking, like I said, talking about the freedom, look, again, rooting it in scripture, because for some people, they're not hearing anything else. But this is like, it still keeps it like this salacious, like kind of guilty pleasure thing that they that they do but it really is not like really connected to who they are so i really work to kind of uh connect like bring them back together like uh rectify not rectify uh, reconcile the two uh experiences and really like when again when you ask me a question i'm going to answer it um i had a a session, I mean, a workshop not too long ago where I spoke with the leader of the church at the time when we booked it. And he was like, you know, stay away from this. We don't, um, this is not, we don't believe in this and this, that, and the third. And I'm like, okay, cool. I respect the, the rules of the house. But then when we got to the anonymous questions part, they were like, I don't want to know this. And how do we get this? And where do I buy this? And so like, I'm kind of like on the microphone, like, mm. What do you what do? You do? <laughs> what do you want me to do? So some of the things I just was like, okay, you know, kind of made a joke about it. Like, you know, uh, we will address this on Sunday morning during the sermon. And so it kind of like got off of it. But I also made it, um, the leader and I also talked about being more comfortable with um, them coming to me directly and having more one-on-one conversations than making it a corporate discussion. Because there's some things that some folks can handle and something that some folks can't. And some folks will come in looking for permission to do a thing that don't, that doesn't even really feel comfortable within themselves, but they just want to do it. And so I'm, I also want to be mindful of that to not be a stumbling block to other folks. It's just like, it's like into, if you know that a, part, a friend is um, working on sobriety you're not going to, you know, pound shots around them. You're not going to, you know, invite them out to the bar. You may not and those kind of things. So this is a similar situation where people's folks' convictions are like, it's, it's a very like uh, delicate situation. And again, you want to make sure that I, I can't come in and uproot the rules and regulations of the house. Like when, it speak, when we speak about the house, talking about the, that particular ministry. And I'm very mindful, very mindful of that. But when I go into new spaces, I ask them when I meet with them or talk to them on the phone, I say, what's your chili spice level? And so I know ahead of time what what you want from me. Like, are we banana pepper, like love language type stuff? Or are we ghost chili BDSM situation? Like, where are we? Like, what, 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 are, what, are, we, what are we talking about? And yeah, so, where, does, where does kink and BDSM fit into all this? I mean, that should, so again, in the, we talk about the scripture that says the better marriage is undefiled and, or, and it's, it talks about, and it's potentially, it means like it's to be undefiled. So it's to be honored and respected and God honors the covenant of marriage. And so there's a connection and a freedom between 
husband and wife that you have access to do things as long as they don't violate other mandates, if you will. So when it comes to like two, we're talking about two consensual adults who are both interested in experiencing and exploring sexual expression in this way, there's no issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's no direct scripture that says like, thou shall not get spanked consensually. No, no, no. No, Right. And the thing is that there are a lot of things that the Bible is either silent about or ambiguous about. And so my pastor teaches that there are biblical absolutes, there are convictions, and then there are preferences. And it gets dicey when folks live and rooted in the preferences and then begin to project their preferences on others. And it also, but at the same time, it gets dicey where folks have convictions and then they don't respond accordingly to their personal convictions. And the things that, and a lot of folks who aren't believers hear things like conviction and think shame, but shame and conviction is not the same. There's another word that we have called condemnation. And there's therefore, scripture says there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So shame is not a biblical thing. Shame is not a experience that God would have for his people, which condemnation is. But just like any other morality, the sense of morality, if there isn't a conviction that you have or something doesn't feel good to you, then don't do it. Don't participate in it. And when I talk to non-practitioners who are non-believers and I say, like, we want to promote sex positivity, but we don't want to push people to so far to the point that we now become the oppression that we're trying to deliver them from. Yeah, so we, I remember I, I got that feedback from a professor that we took a class from, Dr. Polly Friedman, who's mm-hmm. uh, on a past episode of ours, and I think she gave me some feedback because I was I was hearing from like a devout religious person in my mm-hmm. practice, and part of me was like, you know, I don't want them to feel shame. I want to teach them that like sex can be whatever they want it to be, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And if I don't meet them where they're at and with what's right. important to them and the tenets of their faith. Um, I'm going to lose them. They may not listen to like anything I have to say, like if almost if I'm too open. So it's, I don't know, it's really tough to walk the line between not wanting to shame further, but also respecting where someone is at. Absolutely. And where they want to be. Right. And that, that's, that's what I was getting ready to say. Cause the thing is that more than they may not listen to you, something that could possibly be even more dangerous is that they do listen to you and you don't want to like some people's faith system is like really guys, everything that they are really a text. Like my faith and my, who I am in Jesus, like is my entire being. So if someone in a space where to think that I could, I would have to live a life without him or live a life in where I'm just going to intentionally disappoint him or feel like I've disappointed him, that would not be good for me. And so then you'd maybe wanted, be depressed about something totally different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ooh, girl, thank you. <laughs> no problem. Anything good. else that, I mean, I know we could go on forever and I want, I don't want to give away all of the like fun parts of the teachings that I know you do. Cause I want people to hire you for speaking mm-hmm. engagements. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there any, anything else you really want people to know? I recently wrote an a e-guide called Understanding Intimacy, uh, a, belie- a believer's guide. But I also think that it would be um, so it's it's available on my website for folks who who are people of faith and want to really understand, like debunking myths about intimacy, wanting to know what the what God says about um, intimacy and sex and things like that. And just like basic, you know, understands the introduction to what intimacy is that are not often talked about in faith based spaces. But I also think that for folks who are not believers who just want to know more about the experience of sex and intimacy as a person of faith, because like some folks hear it, oh, you're a sage or you're, you believe in Jesus and you talk about sex, like they can't fathom it. So if people who have that mindset, who want to know more of what that experience is like, the EGOT would be really helpful for them as well. And that's available on my uh, website, uh, theintimacyfirm.com. Yes, and you are also available on social media at The Intimacy Firm, right? Yes, on everything. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat. Okay, but everybody go follow, everyone go follow Brittany at The Intimacy Firm. Check out the e-guide at theintimacyfirm.com. Thank you so much for joining. 
thank you so much for having me. This was a really good episode. You pushed me and I appreciate that. <laughs> I, God, we'll, we'll, we'll see the feedback you give me after we stop recording, but I really yeah. enjoyed having you here and, and letting me challenge you. And um, I think this, this topic is really important because we have had a few folks reach out that have felt like We've been almost, um, up, like you said, oppressive and negative to folks of faith because mm -hmm. we're challenging maybe the shame that comes from religiosity. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I want there to be space for both dialogues, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you came and, and talked to us. And if you want to keep following what we're doing at Sluts and Scholars, on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, Twitter at Sluts Scholars, you can email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. And if you feel like you want to help us out a little more, if you can afford it, join us on patreon.com slash slutsandscholars or leave a free review wherever you get your podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you.